Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. This episode was released on April 12, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. This evening, we're doing a mashup of previous shows, the central theme being election issues. This is an election year, and the Alliance Party will have a number of candidates on various ballots throughout the country. It could be argued that every election is unique, but this year is perhaps, if you'll forgive the phrase, more unique than most others. Our country is in the middle of fighting a pandemic using the only blunt instrument at its disposal, the technique of social distancing. We lack a cure, we lack an effective treatment, and we desperately lack test kits. So the only other option is to simply stay home. It turns out that isn't so easy to do in the run-up to this election. Like all sporting events, as well as our schools and many businesses, our primary season has ground to a halt. People simply cannot attend a rally or talk politics over a beer with friends. We can't even go out and vote. In many cases, voting has been postponed. Well, unless you're from Wisconsin. Wisconsinites have been asked to stand in line and violate the concept of social distancing and risk their lives, as well as the lives of everyone they come in contact with, to cast their votes. Democracy or severe illness was presented as a choice in Wisconsin. The state government seemed unable and unwilling to cast it any other way. Uh, But I digress. The concept of voting forms a critical element in the machinery of democracy, but so is the concept of choice. For the most part, the choices have been only two, Democrat or Republican, Republican or Democrat. We call it the duopoly. Now, the thing I love about going to Baskin and Robbins ice cream parlor is the large variety of flavors. You can choose your favorite flavor, or you can even mix several of your favorite flavors together. Choice is great, but in politics, it's butterscotch or hazelnut. Now, I'm not thrilled about either flavor, honestly, and if Baskin Robbins only served those two flavors, I would never go there. So when it comes to voting, who can blame people for just refusing to go through the trouble of voting when there are no good choices? So as we go through this mashup, I'll make some comments on where we're heading. We'll listen in on different episodes of this podcast. We'll hear a lot from the Alliance Party's national chair, Jim Rex, but we'll also hear from some other voices, such as Ralph Nader, who has fought tirelessly for the right to have voices and choices in our elections. Uh, Also, we'll hear from Teresa Amato, who has written extensively on the lack of choices in the voting booth, most notably in her book, Grand Illusion, The Myth of Voter Choice in a Two-Party Tyranny. Also, we'll hear from Lee Drutman, a senior fellow in the political reform program at New America, and who has also written extensively about the disastrous duopoly, most notably in his recent book, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. And we'll hear from David Daly, a senior fellow at FairVote, a nonpartisan champion of electoral reforms that give voters greater choice, a stronger voice, and a representative democracy that works for all Americans. David is the author of the book entitled Rat Eft, Why Your Vote Doesn't Count. It was written in 2016 and makes for extraordinarily important reading in this election year. Up first is a conversation between our podcast moderator, M. Lloyd Johnson, and Jim Rex, the Alliance Party's national chair. This is from an episode that aired on October 27 last year, 2019. The topic of this question is the conundrum we find ourselves within at the voting booth. Who do I vote against? Do I dare enable a spoiler? Here we go. Now, here's an an argument that um, is constantly being thrown at us. Uh, The argument is uh, thrown at us. uh, Don't uh, voters have to choose between the lesser of two evils? Um, And... uh, as a rebuttal to that, uh, have there been alternative uh, political parties uh, that have even affected um, the national election or, or state election? Uh, there's been a few. Uh, it depends on a specific race and, you know, the, the uh, characteristics of that race. You know, sometimes you have uh, no incumbent in a, in a district, person died in office or retired. Um, the advantage of the incumbency is cannot be overstated. Uh, over 90% of incumbents are returned to office every election cycle across this country. Uh, that's true local, state, and federal, uh, which is one reason we need to get rid of career politicians, because once they get in, you can't, you can't get them out. Theoretically, as an abstraction, you can vote them out, but in reality, it, it very seldom happens. So um, 
you know, we have we have to deal that. Um, give me give me the example of that question one more time, Lloyd. So I so I'm, I focus directly on what you asked. Oh, okay. Uh, like for um, well, I'll I'll use the national election as an example. Um, I wasn't uh, a voting age at the time, but I know Ross Perot. Um, mm-hmm. He had a. It seemed like arguably a, a small impact to a non-impact to a, a huge impact um, where he, he got a significant share of the, the vote, um, but he was accused of being a, a spoiler and that got in the way of uh, the lesser of the two evils getting elected in, in a lot of people's minds. So uh, I'm just wondering about this whole, uh, how do you address this argument of um, well, if you're a, an alternative party, you're a third party, you're coming in and, and you're you're spoiling the race when it's so critical that people choose between the lesser of two evils. Well, first of all, and I say this partly tongue-in-cheek, how can you spoil something that's already rotten? And we have a system that's rotten. So, you know, how do you spoil it? Um, Ross Perot is an interesting example of someone who did get into high digits, I think, close to 20%. Um, if I remember correctly, but he was also a multimillionaire, so he had a lot of money. And also he was allowed on the debate stage, the national debate stage, with the presidential candidates from the Republican and Democratic Party. So he got national exposure. And even back then, there were a lot of people frustrated with the two-party system and frustrated with being told over and over again they had to pick the lesser of two evils, not vote for somebody, but vote against somebody. So he started to get traction. The two parties closed ranks right after the Ross Perot phenomenon and set up a system that is so rigged that it's almost impossible for a third-party candidate now to get on the national presidential debate stage. Um, And you haven't seen a candidate since Ross Perot be able to do that. Republicans and Democrats uh, have a committee that makes a decision about who we will get to see for next November's presidential debates. And unless a third candidate has raised a huge amount of money and gotten a certain level of support in the national polls, which is almost impossible, even with a lot of money, because if you don't get publicity, you can't go up in the polls. And if you don't go up in the polls, you can't get publicity. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So they have effectively uh, ensured that no third-party candidate will ever stand alongside the Republican and Democratic candidates again because Ross Perot scared them. Um, what, what I think we're trying to do with the Alliance Party is to tell the American voter, most of whom, the vast majority of whom are now saying they believe we should have a third party in America, uh, six, almost two-thirds now are saying that, um, there are now more people who call themselves independents and not affiliated than there are people who call themselves Republicans or Democrats, and yet those people have no viable choice when they go to the polls in almost every race. So the ground is shifting beneath our feet in terms of what the American people are increasingly saying they're dissatisfied with. What I think it's hard for us to see, all of us, is what the alternative looks like to the system we no longer believe in and trust. And that's just human nature. I mean, we were all born into this two-party system. Our parents were born into it, and our grandparents were born into it. We've, we have, as Americans, we've, we've become accustomed to these two choices, even though we're the only modern democracy left on the planet that only gives its voters two viable alternatives. And I can't think of anything else in our lives where we would settle for having only two choices. But we've been conditioned to our common life experiences to think this is the way it has to be even though we're unhappy with the outcomes. So what the Alliance Party is trying to do is to say there is another approach that can make things better for the average uh, citizen in this country, not just the powerful, the rich, and the affluent, but for the average um, American, the vast majority of Americans. And it's obviously not the system we have now because you can look around you and see the problems that are not being addressed and the worsening of those problems. So voting for a, a, an independent or voting for a third-party candidate is not a wasted vote. 
It's a vote that actually matters. It registers. Uh, most of our our uh, districts are gerrymandered, and I think most people are beginning to know what that word means and why it's a word that does um, does injustice to our democracy, where our politicians are choosing our voters instead of our voters choosing our politicians. And um, and because they're gerrymandered, in most cases, the outcome of the election is already predetermined. Uh, the winner is going to be a Republican, or depending on the district, the winner is going to be a Democrat. The only real question is which Republican or which Democrat. If it's an incumbent, that's who it's going to be over 90% of the time. If it's an open race, it's going to be the Democrat or the Republican, depending on how the district's been gerrymandered. So really, your vote doesn't matter much. You're dumping, into a, you're dumping it into a bucket of red or a bucket of blue with the outcome already predetermined. So if you want your vote to matter, to be noticed, to send a message, stop voting for just R's and D's. And for God's sake, please stop voting straight party, straight party tickets. Um, that is the worst thing you can do for the democracy, where you vote for people just because of the letter next to their name, not for their qualifications. M. Lloyd Johnson and Jim Rex touched on this topic again on December 1 of last year. I, I think Americans as, as a whole, there's a very, very large percentage that um, define themselves as moderate, and, and a lot of them just end up don't voting. Um, do you know anything about uh, the stats on that? Well, uh, yeah, this, the, the majority of Americans have said consistently for a number of years now in polls that neither party, the Republican nor the Democrat, represents their interests. Uh, they don't feel they, they represent their needs or interests. Um, increasingly, there are more Americans who are calling themselves uh, either independent or unaffiliated than either Republican or Democrat. So the two parties' credibility has gone down uh, progressively now for over a decade. And yet, uh, the lesser of two evil um, proposition still tends to dominate our elections with people believing they have only two choices and they pick the one they hate the, they hate the least. Uh, you know, they don't vote for somebody, they vote against somebody. So people are saying they don't like the system. They're saying they realize it's broken. They don't feel good about the way uh, politics works anymore in America. And yet uh, through habit and to some extent through coercion, they end up uh, doing some of the same behaviors one election cycle after the other. That's what we're in the process of hoping to break. In the episode that aired on January 26th of this year, Ralph Nader provided a lot of good insight to third-party dynamics in this country and talked about some ideas and how they can break through and make a difference on the national scene. Well, it's, it's a good point because the, the, the um, ability to, be, to get onto the national scene for these local small parties uh, it's it's very onerous and, and it's it's arguably unconstitutional. These protectionist laws that that the two parties, the Republican and Democratic, uh, particularly the state legislators, that they've put into place in many states to make it very difficult and very expensive for third parties to qualify to uh, have candidates on the ballot. Well, we've won some lawsuits and, and Libertarian Party and Green Party and others. Uh, we're rolling it back slowly. Uh, that, that is. Some of the obstacles in state law to third parties and independent candidates getting on a ballot are being removed on grounds that they're unconstitutional. And uh, it's interesting, however, that all these issues of third party access have all been turned down by the Supreme Court. In the last 40 years, the U.S. Supreme Court has not accepted one case, but there have been circuit court of appeals and district court and state courts who basically said, Hey, uh, Democratic Party, hey, Republican Party, you're blocking uh, voices and choices for the voter, and you're blocking people who can provide that in small party and independent candidates. So we've got to keep pushing. We favor one, uh, one standard for all candidates running for congressional office of the president. Why do we have 50 different states? Uh, they have standards for their own state candidates, for governor and mayor, but they shouldn't have all these different standards varying widely, petitions that have to be accumulated, deadlines, all kinds of ways that they can obstruct you. It should be one federal standard. There have been some congressmen in the past who put in a bill, but it didn't go anywhere. But we should press forward 
So we give the public more voices and choices, and more of them will turn out to vote when you, when you have that. Later during that same conversation, Ralph talked about direct voter suppression as a result of the 2013 Shelby Supreme Court decision. We went on to talk about the concept of the spoiler. According to Ralph, spoiler is a politically bigoted term. He goes on to explain how the phenomenon of the spoiler actually works against our true sense of choice when going to the polls. Voting suppression has become a real menace now. They, they find new ways to obstruct, impede, delay, discourage, uh, purge the rolls. And um, I never thought we'd come to this after the victories with the civil rights laws in 1960s. Uh, mm-hmm. But that was unleashed by the Shelby Supreme Court case called Shelby uh, in 2013 when Chief Justice Roberts said, well, uh, things are pretty nice now in the South and there's no real discrimination. We can get rid of these uh, safeguards. Well, that's what unleashed the voting suppression. Yeah, and it went right back. Yeah. So um, I, I know you're, you're pressed for time at this point, but I, I would just like to try to get your, your opinion on one more thing, this this uh, third party. One of the things third parties have to overcome is this this spoiler argument. Um, do you have any opinion on that when people say, you know, if you— That's a politically bigoted word mm-hmm. because, Dan, as you know, it's never used between Republican and Democrat. They don't call each other spoilers. It's only small parties that want to give the voters more voices and choices— they call spoilers. So my first response is, if everyone has an equal right to run for president or for mayor or for governor or for senator in the United States, then we're either all spoilers of one another because we're trying to get each other's votes, or none of us are spoilers. And the second is, look at the tremendous contribution in the 19th century and early 20th century that third parties made for the kind of livelihood and standard of living, labor protections, consumer protections, income security, social security, and so on, uh, that we now take uh, for granted. And the third is that we should never analyze final elections by saying the Republican beat the Democrat by 600 votes and a third party uh, on the right got 5,000. Therefore, they caused the loss uh, of the other candidate. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and that that's total nonsense because it's the dynamics before the election that make all the difference in the world in anticipating uh, the different candidates and the different issues. Yeah. That's number one. And number two, uh, for the most part, stealing votes, suppressing votes, not counting them properly, more than uh, covers what piddling numbers third parties get in elections uh, these days. You remember in Florida in 2000, uh, Jeb Bush and his Secretary of State uh, finagled the ballots so that they weren't, uh, they were uh, deceptive in South Florida. Mm-hmm. And they also hired a consulting firm uh, that somehow uh, got the names of th- thousands of people who had similar names to felons who had finished their term and couldn't vote, and they stripped thousands of people, yeah, right off the illegally polls. of the of the right to vote. Mm-hmm. So the point is that let's get over this spoiler problem. Everybody should try to do the right thing by the voters, and let the tallies fall where they may. A vote for the Green Party is just as sacred as a vote for the two big parties. And they shouldn't diminish it and degrade it because they're being politically bigoted and they're basically restricting the voices and choices of the American voter. If you want more, go to nationalpopularvote.org, which is a way to neutralize the Electoral College so that presidential candidates who win the popular vote don't lose the office. And presidential candidates who lose the popular vote the way mm-hmm. the way uh, Bush did in two, uh, the way Bush did to Gore and the way uh, the way in 2016 Trump did to Hillary Clinton uh, don't end up winning the election. Yeah. What other country in the world where you come in second and then you have something called the electoral college that gives you the victory? Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, so this nationalpopularvote.org 
it's a little too detailed to discuss. It's already halfway to neutralizing through state legislation from California to New York, already have passed it, uh, so that never again presidential candidates who win the popular vote lose the election. And uh, by the way, if you want to see what a third party or an independent party candidate campaigns on that the other two parties refuse to, to put on the table and even discuss, I have on my old website, votenator.org, for the 2008 election. It's still open for your access. You'll see about 18 or 19 very important issues, most of them supported by a majority of the American people, that were put off the table, off the table, by Obama and McCain in 2008. Never even discussed it, such as a living wage, cracking down on corporate crime, universal health insurance, a progressive tax system, de-bloating the wasteful military budget of empire, and so on. In the March 1 interview, we talked at length with Teresa Amato. Back in 2009, she published the book Grand Illusion, the Myth of Voter Choice in a Two-Party Tyranny. Teresa was the national presidential campaign manager and in-house counsel for Ralph Nader during his campaigns for president in 2000 and 2004, and is the first woman to run two high-profile presidential campaigns outside the two parties. I wish we had more time to talk with Teresa, because she is a real authority on how elections are run in this country, and the conversation we had was jam-packed with interesting information, ranging from ballot access to presidential debates to how the media has become an unwitting participant in helping solidify the grip that the duopoly has on American politics. In this segment of the interview, we discuss the evolution of ballot access and how it grew from its conception in the early 20th century to the exclusionary and inherently unfair force of today. We also touched on how our language has been manipulated to instill a subconscious predisposition toward the assumption that the U.S. is strictly a two-party nation. So, speaking of the federal government, you, you mentioned in your book that, um, that the federal government, uh, and this is, you know, we're going back to 2009, so um, the federal government does not step into ballot access at all in preferring to leave the administration of elections up to the states. And so, um, I guess I'm kind of pivoting here to ballot access, but um, isn't, isn't that kind of the way the Constitution was set up? And, I, of course, I'm not a lawyer or anything like that, but wasn't the Constitution sort of set up to um, act as a bond between different independent entities rather than as a homogeneous uh, body of ubiquitous laws? And, and realize I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here because I kind of know what your answer is going to be, but, uh, but I'm trying to square that circle in my head. How does the federal government actually step in and start um, um, into the state's business, really, and start talking about ballot access and, and um, qualifications for politicians and such. Sure. Well, the, the, the Constitution left it, uh, by and large, uh, to, to the states uh, to, to run the elections. However, um, you've had for, the, for mo- much of our history, until the beginning of the, uh, the 20th century, uh, you, you didn't have the government even involved in printing ballots and distributing them. That was a reform in the early 20th century uh, because the parties originally uh, determined who was going to be on their ballot, and they printed the ballots in order uh, as a what was viewed at the time as a good government reform. Uh, the government started stepping in and then started to uh, require various different um, preconditions for becoming a candidate eligible to be on the ballot. And so some have, you know, back in the early 1900s said, you have to collect this many signatures or you have to do it by this amount of time or you have to uh, uh, be affiliated with an entity that had um, collected so many or had received a certain percentage of the vote in a prior election. And many didn't even have any procedures for an independent candidate uh, outside of already established parties. And so then they had to think about, well, uh, what will be the procedures for establishing a new party or what would be the procedure for allowing for independence? And so over time, you have uh, what is typically the General Assembly in each of the states determining who can and cannot be on the ballot. And those general assemblies have 
been dominated for the most part by the two major parties, right? Mm-hmm. And so the two major parties uh, are not always in favor of allowing uh, for competition uh, against the two major parties because they tend to like predictability. Mm-hmm. And competition introduces an element of unpredictability, which then makes the campaign more, uh, the campaigns more dicey. And so you don't have a lot of third parties and independents currently represented in the legislatures of the 50 states. And as a consequence, um, whoever is in charge of those legislatures can also help tip the vote and make it either easier or tip the criteria, the vote for the criteria of how to get on the ballot and make it easier for, uh, for example, uh, what they view as the competition to the opposing party to be able to get on the ballot. So, for example, if you have a uh, Republican-dominated legislature, they might say, well, we want um, people to be able to challenge the Democratic Party's uh, candidates more easily, and so we would like uh, minor parties um, that would siphon votes, quote-unquote, from the Democratic mm-hmm. uh, Party, and vice versa. If you have a Democratic-controlled Congress, they may want to make it easier for um, parties um, to either retain ballot access or to be able to develop ballot access by making it easier for uh, challengers to um, the Republican the the Republican Party. So mm-hmm. you can uh, you see that the the two parties uh, in the state legislatures can write the rules, keep the rules a, a particular way, or facilitate more competition. It's not necessarily in their interest, though, to facilitate competition if they like the way it's running for them now. Yeah. I think you wrote in your book, and maybe it was in your book, I've read so many things lately, but about Ross Perot kind of, um, uh, I think it was your book, where you talked about, uh, I think the Bush campaign wanted Ross Perot to be in the debates because their calculation at the time was that that uh, this third party would siphon votes off the Democrats and therefore, um, you know, provide more votes for the Republicans. So in that case there, you have a situation where, yeah, um, one of the established parties really did want a third party in there, but was using more as a chess piece, not really as as some sort of virtuous thought about having, you know, let's have more parties involved in the uh, political system. Right. It, 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 the motivation is not necessarily because everybody believes in, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom uh, and, and everybody should be able to have a voice. That's not necessarily the motivation that's being gamed, obviously, for uh, to a political um, benefit or detriment. And um, what you had uh, with Ross Perot, and, and let's talk a little bit about the Commission on Presidential Debates, because mm-hmm. I think that's a, um, a good example. Ross Perot was the only has been the only third party or independent uh, candidate since the um since uh, the commission on presidential debates has been able to control uh, the presidential debates since 1988 and so you've had all these elections where uh, uh no minor party or independent candidate has been able to participate because the commission, which is a nonpartisan organization here in Washington, D.C., where uh, determines the criteria for who gets to be on that debate stage. And of course, having that kind of exposure to the American public exactly when uh, most Americans start to pay attention to the debates uh, around a la- uh, or the presidential election around mm-hmm. Labor Day, for example, um, it, it can never really be replaced in the same way, um, either by going around to every state and giving talks, or unless you have your own channel and you, right. and you are able to get tens of millions of people to watch you, uh, 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 but most people t- tune in to the presidential debates. I want to say a couple of things. There's an excellent book written by George Farah on this called No Debate in the History of the Presidential Debates, because a lot of people are confused and think that, well, maybe the League of Women Voters still runs it as they used to, uh, but that's not the case. And so this is an organization that was birthed in uh, uh, with two leaders from the Democratic Party and the Republican Party originally uh, led the commission. And uh, 
they set up the rules to, to benefit the Democratic and Republican candidates and has set the criteria at a point where you've had no one outside of the two parties who've been able to uh, break in since Ross Perot. Mm-hmm. That's true. And, um, yeah, this this committee, uh, Commission on Presidential Debates, um, that's um, you wrote pretty extensively about that in your book as well. It was it was pretty interesting how they not only uh, excluded any third parties, but um, in in your personal experience watching um, um, Ralph Nader try to get into one of these debates just as a spectator um, was not even allowed on the premises. It was they were they were enforcing their their anti third party rule so uh, um, so much at that point that they didn't want anybody even in the audience that was a third party. That was interesting to me. Yes. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, the, the campaign uh, then went to court over that. Uh, and there's a, there's a clip of it in a, in a, by a, a, a documentary about Ralph's uh, career called An, An Unreasonable Man. And uh, you can see how... Uh, uh, you know, he he wanted to do. Um, he had been an invited guest of a media program and had a ticket to a third, uh, uh, a, a rather a, a, a viewing room that was not the actual auditorium of the debates. But mm-hmm. they weren't going to even let him there uh, onto the campus um, at that particular debate. And so, uh, you know, it, it shows the lengths to which uh, the commission was quite opposed to, um, or its representatives, um, uh, quite opposed to having uh, third parties uh, on the premises or in in any way being able to participate. Right. But, of course, the the campaigns, uh, people, I I think, learned about that. And um, and I, I don't think, though, that you know, that's had any impact on their criteria in terms of allowing people in, even though the majority of the people at the time wanted both uh, Pat Buchanan and Ralph Nader in the 2000 um, debates. Yeah. And I noticed that you used the word nonpartisan when you talked about the Commission on Presidential Debates. And what I find very interesting is that the words nonpartisan and bipartisan are kind of used interchangeably these days, where people say it's a bipartisan yeah, commission. That's a but, bit of a pet peeve. <laughs> oh, okay. I hit a nerve, huh? <laughs> yes. Uh, you, uh, you, people think that as uh, oftentimes uh, a commission or an organization or whatever is referred to as bipartisan, and therefore uh, everybody should be thrilled that it means that it's not in the pocket of one or of the two major parties. But uh, as a society, I think we've become conditioned to interchanging those uh, words. And and I see uh, when somebody, I think I wrote about this in the book, that when somebody says bipartisan, it's just like nails on the chalkboard to me because it it totally wipes out all the other all the other parties, minor mm-hmm. parties, third parties, I don't even like those terms, right? But all the other parties uh, and independents who should be able to be considered in what is, whatever is being uh, discussed. So uh, uh, nomenclature is important. And so I'd like to go back to what you talked about, and, and I, I use the phrase, too, as an example of how uh, the legislatures uh, would consider siphoning off votes. I don't like that concept of you're taking votes away from one of the other parties right. or candidates or whatnot. Oftentimes it's expressed in the uh, pejorative term of spoiler, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I view uh, the fundamental uh, objective of being able to run freely for office as you must earn the votes of the American people. They are not pre-assigned to one party or to another party. They are not pre-assigned to one candidate or another candidate. It's everybody has to compete for these votes. Uh, And to then say, well, they fall into just this party or that party, and so anybody challenging it might, quote, take votes away from or siphon votes off or become the spoiler in a particular 
particular election is just uh, a viewpoint that reinforces the concept that we only have two parties, and those are the quote-unquote legitimate ones that are allowed to participate, and thereby everyone else who's not in the bipartisan makeup of those uh, elections is therefore somehow a fringe or uh, a, or not a legitimate contender uh, within the particular race. And that, I think, gets reinforced when people use the term bipartisan as opposed to nonpartisan or transpartisan or other kinds of uh, uh, verbiage that uh, that indicates that, hey, we're not a country of two parties. The word party is not in the Constitution. And uh, though we quit, and, and certainly when the Federalist Papers were written and whatnot, people did not imagine we would be just be two parties and try to avoid that, though it quickly uh, delved, um, it, it quickly Devolved became it, yeah. that. It is still, you know, you can get to a point where you have, uh, and I think we're... Um, uh, we're seeing it, uh, especially with, we haven't even talked about gerrymandered districts, or yeah. um, where you have people, uh, even of the two parties, not challenging a, another party because they think of elections as foregone conclusions. And so if we're going to view elections as foregone conclusions, why would you have them? Uh, we need to make the rules fair for participation. And and I think a competitive uh, democracy or democratic republic, as I like, you know, most people use uh, that term. And uh, that's why I like certain organizations. I serve on the board of the Center for Competitive Democracy at competitivedemocracy.org. I like Fair Vote. Uh, I like Represent Us and No Labels and others who are trying to expand the dialogue, right? And you had asked me at one point about um, uh, is it are we doing are we doing a service by expanding that dialogue? I think so, um, yeah. and and I'm not endorsing any particular organization, but uh, I I do think that having more people understand how the rules of elections work and being able to work for not just one particular uh, party uh, and allow more people to participate is a good thing. More recently, we talked with Lee Drutman on the March 22nd episode. Lee is a senior fellow in the Political Reform Program at New America. He is also the author of the freshly published book called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. Back in 2015, he also published the book The Business of America is Lobbying. Lee is also a fellow podcaster. He co-hosts a podcast called Politics in Question. So we asked Lee to describe how the duopoly was able to establish itself as such a strong influence in the United States, and what are the consequences, and is there any recourse for those who feel disenfranchised? So I want to uh, just just jump right into the lake right here, and I know we have a limited amount of time today, but um, could you do the best you can to at least uh, sort of walk us through how we, this country, got to the point of extreme duopoly in this country? Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to. So in the book, I start the history at uh, mid-century, 1950 or so, uh, and I talk about a report that came out in 1950 by the American Political Science Association uh, called Towards a More Responsible Two-Party System. Now, political scientists at the time, or at least some political scientists, thought that the problem with American politics was that parties were these incoherent, overlapping messes that didn't really stand for anything. They were just these sort of containers of all these different state and local parties. And as a result, national politics was very parochial. And voters didn't have really a clear understanding of what they were voting for when they voted for a party. And parties didn't have a, a clear program when they got into government. And political scientists said, well, this is not a great situation because voters should be able to uh, vote for a party that stands for something. And they should be able to hold that party accountable because they actually had a program that they put forward uh, and tried to implement. Now, uh, one of the criti other criticisms of the party system at that time around 1950 was that it suppressed the issue of civil rights, that the sort of mm -hmm. broad bipartisan national consensus was built on 
uh, detente over uh, maintaining the Jim Crow South between Democrats and Republicans. Uh, now, uh, as we know, that uh, eventually uh, came to the fore in, in the 1960s. There was a tremendous civil rights revolution, and that set in motion a long realignment of the two parties uh, and uh, increasing nationalization of American politics, so that instead of having these two broad coalition parties uh, that were largely overlapping uh, and you know, largely centrist, we had one party of cultural conservatism and one party of cultural liberalism, uh, one party for rural and exurban America, one party for cosmopolitan urban America, and uh, we have nationalized elections in which the control of power in Washington is up for grab in every election now. It's been the way been that way for almost three decades. And uh, both of these factors, uh, having a politics increasingly organized around cultural conflict and having very close nationalized elections, has escalated this hyper-partisan doom loop in which the parties draw very sharp distinctions, create these existential stakes around every election, and it's driving us all crazy and it is making our government dysfunctional. And that's where we got to where we are today then. Um, but could you sort of discuss then what the, what the results are on this, uh, on, the, on the American public? Because, you know, um, this extreme duopoly, uh, you cited in your book that it demotivates the average voter. So especially those voters in the lower end of the economic scale. So, I mean, what are the, what are the consequences of this action? Well, the consequences are uh, many. I think the most, you know, certainly it, it demobilizes a lot of voters because when you have one party uh, of the cities and one party of the country, you wind up with a lot of elections that are just not competitive. Uh, and so most voters feel like their votes don't matter because it's true that their votes don't matter. But I, I think the most fundamental problem is that democracy uh, depends on a sense of shared fairness and legitimacy in, in the process, particularly the process of elections, process of rulemaking. And what we have now in America is a political process uh, in which uh, both sides view the other side as illegitimate and a, and a cheater. And you know, I really worry what happens in, in November 2020, uh, now that we're recording this uh, and it's clear that coronavirus is, is going to be a, a factor, uh, there, there may be a lot of ways in which states move to new uh, procedures that uh, create some doubt among potential losers. Uh, elections, democracy depends on a, on a sense that there is some sort of shared fairness and a process for resolving uh, disagreements and disputes that everybody agrees is fair. And if the only fair process is a fair process in which your side is the winner, uh, then we don't have a democracy. Mm-hmm. or we run the risk of, of slipping into some sort of authoritarian or semi-authoritarian state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but a lot of the people that, you know, it, it, that you say are like uh, perhaps dis- feel disenfranchised or as if their votes don't matter, they don't partake at all, right? I mean, these are the people that are kind of in the middle of this great chasm, and you have like all the uh, the extreme right on one side, extreme left on the other side, and, and so the people in the middle— um, they kind of get lost, right? They don't get to partake in any of the um, legislation going on or any of the decisions that are being made. Well, I, 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 I actually don't think it, it, it makes sense to think of politics on a linear left-right spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think actual the actual center is on a single line is, is not actually that big. What you have are a lot of voters who feel turned off by the process, uh, but I wouldn't call them centrist or moderate. I wouldn't consider them in the middle. Uh, often they have extreme views on, on different issues. There are a lot of voters who feel cross-pressured who are socially conservative but economically liberal, which mm-hmm. is sort of what Trump pretended to be in the 2016 campaign. There are some voters who are economically or fiscally conservative and socially liberal, and, and both of those groups of voters don't really have a party. There are a lot of voters who just are a little bit all over the place. And, you know, frankly, a lot of voters who have just sort of checked out of the process entirely, and it's not necessarily because they have moderate views or feel uh, 
or somewhere in between the parties. It's just that they don't feel that either party re- really speaks to them. They feel like nothing that much changes regard- for them personally, regardless of who's in control. And they just see a lot of fighting and bickering. And neither party is really trying to reach out to them and mobilize them and incorporate them because it turns out that when you only have about 40 or 50 congressional districts that are competitive at most, you know, maybe five or six states that are competitive, uh, most voters are just ignored, mm-hmm. uh, frankly. In the December 29, 2019 episode, we talked with David Daly, a senior fellow at an organization known as FairVote. FairVote is a nationwide nonpartisan champion of electoral reforms, and they believe in giving voters greater choice, a stronger voice, and a representative democracy that works for all Americans. You may find more information on FairVote at www.fairvote.org. David Daly is a senior fellow for FairVote, and he is also the author of a book entitled Rat-Eft, Why Your Vote Doesn't Count. David is a frequent lecturer and media source about gerrymandering. He is the former editor-in-chief of Salon.com and the former CEO and publisher of the Connecticut News Project. He is a digital media fellow at the Wilson Center for the Humanities and the Grady School of Journalism at the University of Georgia. And his work has appeared in New York Magazine, The Atlantic, The Boston Globe, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, USA Today, Rolling Stone, Details, and he's been on CNN and NPR. If you look at the FairVote website, you would see that they are a big proponent of something called ranked choice voting. The idea of ranked choice voting, or RCV, is that it makes democracy more fair and functional. With ranked choice voting, voters have the option to rank candidates in order of choice. Voters can rank as many candidates as they want without fear that ranking others will hurt the chances of their favorite candidate. Very simply, here's how a winner is determined in ranked choice voting. The first choice candidate of each ballot is thrown into a pool where tabulation takes place. At the end of the tabulation, any candidate with 50% or more of the count is declared the winner. But if no candidate is able to secure 50% or more of the count, then the candidate with the lowest count is taken out of the pool, but those ballots associated with that candidate will then have their second choice candidate thrown into the pool. Tabulation is done again to see if anyone makes 50% or more of the count. If again nobody makes it to that point, the candidate with the lowest count is removed from the pool and the next candidate choice on the associated ballots are thrown into the pool. The process continues until a candidate emerges with 50% or more of the votes. The advantage is that each voter can vote for more than one person, so he or she doesn't feel as though they're pressured into making a binary decision. But another huge advantage is that each candidate has to address more than just his or her base supporters. They must speak to everyone. David Daly actually describes this fairly well. Let's listen in. Well, what is it about ranked choice voting? Is it is is it because the um, I mean, there's a habit now with all politicians to you know just sort of speak to their base because they, for some reason, believe that you know they only have to appeal to their base. We we see that you know, example after example all the way up to the presidency on this. So ranked choice voting, by its nature, uh, forces them to branch out from their base. It does. I mean, ranked choice voting means that you need to have a majority in any election to actually win that election. So when you have these single-member districts and these winner-take-all elections, and say there's four or five candidates in that race, you can win an election with 21 20% of the vote. And we see that happening around the country. Uh, and when... A politician knows that all it takes to win is 21% of the vote. They can campaign differently. They don't have to talk to everybody. They can go out and simply look for their most motivated extreme voters, and you can get them angry and turn them out. Um, When you have to appeal to everybody, when you have to find a way to get to 50% plus one, it's a completely different campaign strategy. You have to go out and actually talk to all voters. If you are not their first choice, you have to find a way to be their second choice. You end up seeing a much more civil and constructive campaigns. You see candidates uh, crossing the aisle and working together and campaigning 
for those second choice votes. Um, and then once a politician is in office, they're able to behave differently. I mean, right now, when you send a politician um, from one of these, you know, single member winner take all districts to Washington, the only election that they really fear, right, is a primary challenge. Um, and primaries are often held over the summer in their low turnout elections. Um, and you can radicalize a small base. And that is what those politicians fear losing. They know they're safe in the general election. Uh, so when they go to Washington, they don't feel like they have any reason to compromise. A compromise is the one thing that, that is going to earn you a primary challenge from you know somebody to your far left or far right. Um, so mm-hmm. a ranked choice voting doesn't just change the nature of our elections. It incentivizes our politicians to behave differently once they're in office. Once again, you can visit the FairVote website at www.fairvote.org for more information on ranked choice voting, as well as information on gerrymandering, multi-winner elections, and the Fair Representation Act, which is a bill, H.R. 4000, currently in front of the 116th U.S. Congress. Well, that about wraps it up for this mashup. We hope you've enjoyed the quick trip down memory lane. We actually have someone else from FairVote lined up for next week, so please tune in for more information. We plan to talk about how our elections this year are being impacted in a time of social distancing. And please keep in mind that the Alliance Party After Dark now has a Twitter feed, which can be found at Alliance on Air. All one word, no hyphens, no underscores. Alliance on Air. And thank you for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.